welcome to another episode of Dragon Road, a podcast on China's rise in the world by the Bad Lab. My name is Arif Rafiq, and I'm your host. On July 28th, an Afghan Taliban delegation headed by Mullah Abdul Ghani brother visited Tianjin in China and met with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Chinese state media published striking imagery of both officials walking toward one another with open arms, triggering speculation from outside observers that the jihadist insurgent group and the communist atheist republic were embarking on a strategic embrace. Writing in Foreign Policy magazine, an American analyst with the Rand Corporation said that a quote-unquote romance between Beijing and the Taliban had commenced, and Indian commentators have begun to conjure notions of a China-Pakistan-Taliban alliance. But China's engagement of the Taliban and its broader strategy toward Afghanistan belie such crude characterizations. So to help us understand China's goals in Afghanistan, we're joined by Raffaello Pantucci, a longtime observer of China and Central Asia and a senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. Raffaello, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. So let's start with the July 28th meeting uh, between the Taliban and, or the Taliban's visit to Tianjin in, in China. Um, they met with uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and there was this very vivid display of both sides kind of embracing one another almost. Uh, and some depicted the visit as a kind of a Chinese power play, with the Chinese anointing the Taliban to some kind of status as legitimate global actors. You know, in my view, that seems to be you know a very silly assertion. You know, the United States itself concluded a deal with the Taliban in Doha and Doha and Qatar. And, you know, there was that whole signing ceremony with Mike Pompeo in attendance. And that certainly gave the Taliban uh, legitimacy, some degree of legitimacy in, in the at the global level. So, you know, I'm wondering uh, what is your perspective on that? But then also, you know, more broadly, what did Beijing seek to get out of this visit? Uh, there have been numerous, uh, several Taliban visits before that, I think, perhaps none at this high level. But, uh, you know, I'm wondering, um, you know, was this visit pre-planned or is, was it in response to uh, the deterioration in the regional security situation, including, you know, recent attacks uh, against Chinese nationals in Pakistan. So what's what's behind all this? I think that uh, your opening point about, you know, the overplaying in some way of this as a, you know, validation of the Taliban in some way that hadn't happened before is spot on. I mean, I think that the Chinese are kind of only really doing what everyone else has been doing for some time and doing it publicly. Um, and I think that was probably more about Beijing's dynamics with the Afghan government uh, than, frankly, anything else. Um, but I think putting that to one side, I think the question of why now and, and what's happened, I mean, if you can go back and look at the past month or so, you can see there's been a lot of Chinese uh, diplomatic activity around Afghanistan. As the situation in Afghanistan has been coming to a head, after the US sort of made this very bold declaration about withdrawing very definitively and then pulling all its forces out quite abruptly after that, um, we've seen a real surge in kind of regional diplomatic activity, and China has really been a very active member of that. Uh, we just saw a couple of weeks ago, um, Wang Yi did a trip to Central Asia where he was putatively there to attend a Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Dushanbe, but he also paid a visit in Tashkent, and they held a big conference there uh, looking at Central South Asia connectivity, and then he also visited Turkmenistan. Um, on top of that, we've had Xi Jinping has had a direct call with President Ghani, um, and we've had a lot of other sort of engagements going on. So in a way, one could interpret this particular visit as part of that wider diplomatic engagement, which is essentially China trying to sort of solidify, you know, exactly what its position and its relationships are on the ground and around uh, Afghanistan, um, you know, as we get to that moment when the U.S. is completely sort of withdrawn and as we see the situation in Afghanistan coming to something of a head. So I think we could interpret it within that. You know, here they are meeting with another faction, an important faction on the ground. Um, but I think the other element that's important to remember that's a bit more specific is, um, is the recent incidents that we saw in uh, Pakistan. Um, and I think growing Chinese concern about Uyghur militancy uh, that they have now seen behind uh, this uh, an attack that took place a, a week or more ago in Pakistan, in Dasu, where a busload of uh, Chinese engineers were killed uh, by a suicide car bomber. So, you know, that 
clearly seems to have played into this. We had just before uh, the Taliban visits and very senior level uh, Pakistani visits as well. Um, and I think there seems to have been a very clear desire to message that Uyghur militancy was something that they were particularly concerned about. And that message seems to have been one that was a bit more kind of specific to here and now. Now, of course, that's a message that, you know, China's always been worried about, uh, but linked to this particular attack, of course, makes it much more sort of current. But I think basically those seem to be the two big points uh, that we can see coming out of um, at this particular uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into some of those specifics a bit later. But it seems clear to me that Beijing has um, a deep discomfort with the nature of the U.S. withdrawal. Um, Chinese officials from the Foreign Affairs Ministry have said on the record on numerous occasions that uh, they've essentially said that the U.S. Uh, withdrawal is, is taking place uh, somewhat recklessly. Uh, and I think there's a fear of anarchy in Afghanistan, uh, you know, with the U.S. departure without a, a political settlement. And, and, you know, I see those as, as legitimate fears. Uh, but I'm wondering how vulnerable really is Beijing? You know, it shares a border with uh, Afghanistan, but, you know, it's a border that's not that long. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what is your understanding of, of how porous that border is? And is that really a vulnerability or is there a, a broader challenge from, from, uh, from, from militancy in general, some extra, some regional challenge that may ultimately come back to China? Um, so is the border, uh, is there really a challenge of cross-border militancy, or is it something a bit more general? I I think there is a very live concern in Beijing that, you know, Afghanistan, if it becomes a huge, unstable place with lots of sort of Islamist militants gathering there, it'd be fairly easy for a kind of Uyghur group to set up. There are some Uyghur groups, I think, in Afghanistan, um, though their size is always very difficult to sort of assess. Um, And, of course, they're concerned about these people launching attacks against them. And we've certainly seen reports in the past that that has happened. Uh, So, you know, I think the concern is a real one from Beijing's perspective, and one can see, you know, strands of how that would materialize. But I think when we think about how how it might come back to Afghanistan, back to China, sorry, um, that seems a bit more complicated to happen directly. And that's, I think, because, you know, what the Chinese have been doing over the past few years is frankly uh, building up relationships and, uh, you know, creating a security buffer. Um, And so they've developed relationships with all of the actors on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, And in some way, this recent visit to Tianjin sort of highlighted and reaffirmed that connection with the Taliban as well. Um, So they've developed all these relationships on the ground. On top of that, they've uh, invested in Tajik and Pakistani in Gilgit-Baltistan sort of security capabilities to help strengthen those sort of indirect borders. And they've also worked with the Afghan uh, forces in Badakhshan, as well as establish their own PAP base at least one, maybe two in Tajikistan, and even reports of a potential Chinese base, um, though it's not clear how shared this is or not with the Afghans in Afghanistan. So they kind of created a security buffer uh, that covers from their direct border with Afghanistan, which ultimately is only something like 70 or 80 kilometers long, um, is quite remote, quite easy in some ways to police because it's essentially a valley. Um, but they've also strengthened the borders on either side of the Wakhan corridor. So you know, they've created a kind of security buffer between themselves and Afghanistan. And on top of this, uh, they've developed strong relationships with everyone on the ground. And I think that gives them a sort of aggregate level of assurance about the potential risk of militant problems from Afghanistan coming all the way back uh, to uh, China. Um, and I think that has been their sort of game plan for some time now. Um, the only other thing I'd briefly say is on your, on your point about the uh, United States and kind of how the Chinese view the American withdrawal. Um, I think that there's kind of a number of parts of this. I think on the one hand, there is, I think, a genuine irritation <laughs> that the Americans are leaving and the situation is quite as chaotic as it was. But, you know, they must have expected this was going to come at some point. So it can't come as a total shock. I think it, rhetorically, I think they quite like talking about that because it does highlight in some way in this region, uh, you know, a narrative of American, you know, flightiness, you know, the Americans come, they cause chaos, and then they leave. And, you know, that illustrates, you know, we China are not like that. And that's a message that they kind of want to deliver and they quite like. Um, and so in a way, I think we, we need to be careful not to sort of confuse those in a way, because I think the interpretation can be that China is becoming more exaggeratedly concerned about these problems suddenly now and blaming on the Americans. That, you know, that narrative is one that kind of helps and is a narrative that Beijing would like to advance at the same time. The only final point I'd add to this is 
a sort of more worrying uh, twist in this tale that I think we've seen emerge over the past few months, really, um, which is this narrative of American irresponsibility, but even worse, of American uh, complicity somehow in trying to manipulate groups on the ground to ultimately attack China. Um, and that's something we've seen the Ministry of Foreign Affairs pushing for some time now. Um, and it's one that, you know, historically, you know, there's all sorts of conspiracies that rattle around this region about, you know, proxies and using groups and this, that, and the other. Um, and so in some ways, this is just another one of those on top. But I think it's quite worrying is that this is something I remember I used to hear in Beijing as something people would sort of, you know, mutter uh, to each other and, you know, sort of jokingly say. But now you can see senior Chinese officials openly saying this, that they're accusing the Americans of manipulating militant groups in Afghanistan to ultimately try to hurt China. And I think the move that we saw at the end of the Trump administration to remove, uh, to take the uh, group, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, off uh, the list of prescribed terrorist organizations, um, kind of really breathed life into that narrative in a way that I don't think we'd seen before. And so that, I think, is an additional element, which is quite, uh, which I think is, is seems to be hanging heavy in China's mind when they look at the connections uh, of potential militant groups might um, come across the border to hurt them from Afghanistan. Mm. And so do you think, um, you know, there are references to this potential proxy warfare mm. that uh, could emerge? Is that uh, something they're simply using uh, to attack uh, U.S. reputation, the reputation of the United States? And uh, or are there legitimate fears that um, do they generally have these fears or do elements of their, you know, the Communist Party and the security apparatus there generally have fears that, um you know, there could be this kind of proxy war leveraged against it. Um, I think it's, it's very difficult to tell. Um, and, you know, I, I think what, what has surprised me is to see very senior, uh, you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials in particular, I mean, Chinese security officials tend to be quite mute, um, you know, come on record and say these things. Um, and, you know, I know Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy is kind of all the vogue now. And so saying is, you know, dramatic and uh, nasty things as possible is kind of the given, but right. you know it, it's uh, it's it's a particular narrative and quite an accusation uh, in some ways to make that is different to some of the other wolf warrior accusations you see rattling around. Um, and it just it, I, I do wonder. Um, I do think there does seem to be a part of the system that really does believe this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course you know for the ones who are dealing with you know Pakistan and Afghanistan um, and India that you know, within that context, this kind of proxy warfare is quite real, frankly. Um, And so, you know, those accusations always rattle around in in South Asia. And so, you know, to some degree, it's possible that they're just sort of hearing them a lot on the ground and echoing it. But but I I have been surprised, frankly, by the vociferousness of the public statements that have come out um, about what is a really quite serious sort of accusation, and I don't think would be made uh, lightly. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, when you look at uh, some of the commentary that's coming out of Washington uh, by members of Congress or by, you know, retired officials or even serving uh, officials that have, you know, that are constantly trying to lobby for some kind of residual U.S. presence, um, you know, many mention um, the strategic location of Afghanistan and its utility in terms of at least uh, surveilling China. So I think, you know, some of these statements may contribute to some degree of, um, you know, fear or paranoia or whatever you want to call it uh, among the Chinese. So, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's unclear um, to what extent these perceptions are genuine, but uh, to the extent that they are, you know, it could be that some of these statements are also contributing to that. So now, you know, looking at the the, um, the context here, we have a U.S. exit, China neighbors, uh, Afghanistan, um, the specific threat to to China itself um, is is a bit unclear, uh, but there is some uncertainty. Um, and you know, some say that post nine eleven, China was uh, you know more or less a kind of a, f- a free rider vis a vis of Afghanistan. That the United States was you know bearing the burden of countering terrorism and ensuring some degree of stability in Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, it had its own reasons for that, but. You know, China now has an opportunity or perhaps uh, a need uh, to play a deeper role and perhaps even fill a vacuum in Afghanistan. So I'm wondering, you know, in your view, what is the the risk appetite and risk tolerance of China in terms of uh, getting more involved in the Afghanistan peace process, uh, attempting to ensure some modicum of 
economic and political stability in Afghanistan and perhaps even providing security assistance? You know, what are, you know, there may be a range of opinions in China's strategic community. I'm wondering, what is your understanding of all that? I mean, I think the one consistent thing I've heard from Chinese experts, uh, talking to various Chinese experts over the years about Afghanistan is, you know, they will almost always make jokes about Afghanistan being the graveyard of empires, um, you know, and me being a British person, I'll of course start with the British and then they'll talk about the Russians and now they'll say the Americans. So, you know, I, and, I, and I, I think that's said glibly up to a point, but I do think that the general sense that, you know, well, this is a very difficult country and we've watched as many others have come a cropper trying to deal with the situation there. So I think that there's always going to be a level of trepidation uh, within China about how far they want to sort of engage and get involved on the ground and how much they want to take responsibility for what ultimately is going to happen. Um, so I think that there's always going to be a certain level of hesitation, at, you know, taking sort of strategic ownership of the situation and filling that vacuum as is sometimes described. But then I think I have to look at this from another perspective, which is, you know, why would China want to or need to in a way? And I think then we have to think about their kind of general strategic outlook, which is actually, I don't think it's as transformative in some ways as we see um, in, uh, in the West. So, um, you know, in the West, we, uh, you know, our governments will talk about going uh, to countries and, you know, making them better and, you know, turning them into uh, liberal democracies or the kind of country that we live in or the kind of country that we would like to live in. Um, you know, I, I don't think the Chinese necessarily see it in the same way. Um, I think what they would say is, well, you know, as long as Afghanistan isn't a source of instability and problems for us, um, as long as it's not causing, you know, direct and, you know, chaos, incalculably large chaos in its neighborhood, um, as long as its neighborhood is sort of broadly happy with what the situation is on the ground there, you know, well, that's okay with us, you know, and whoever's in charge, if it's the Taliban, if it's the current government, if it's a mix of the two, if it's a sort of series of factions on the ground, well, that's okay too. We'll just kind of manage whatever situation is in front of us. Um, and I think they're kind of less concerned in some ways about the transformative aspects of their foreign policy. And in a way, the question of a sort of vacuum of security that someone needs to come in and fill, you know, that aspect probably from their perspective is interpreted, uh, I think, slightly differently. Um, they would say, well, why, you know, why does someone need to in a way? Well, the Afghans should fill that vacuum and let's see what that looks like. And then we'll just kind of manage that situation. Um, I think the difficult thing that the Chinese will find this time in, in trying to go forwards with this approach is that, you know, they are a very different actor now to the one that they were certainly when the U.S. went into Afghanistan and even, you know, more than they were when the U.S. last talked about pulling out in this sort of dramatic way, which was really sort of 2012, 2014 under President Obama. Um, you know, they are now the world's second largest economy. <laughs> they are sharing their neighbor to Afghanistan. They are an increasingly influential actor in all of Afghanistan's neighborhood. Um, and so I think there's going to be a greater sense from the neighborhood that, well, China does need to play a bigger role here. And we will ask it. And I think in some ways you can see that echoed in uh, some of the regional diplomacy that we've seen going on in uh, Central Asia um, and even arguably in Pakistan, where you can see that I think there's a, a sense in the region that they need to engage with China within this context as well, because China is increasing the kind of big player there. And I think the degree to which China can just sort of say, well, actually, we'll just sort of let the chips fall where they may and deal with the consequences. Um, I, I think that's going to be a little bit harder uh, in some ways for them to sustain uh, this time because of, you know, if the situation in Afghanistan gets, uh, you know, completely out of hand and we see trouble really spilling over into all directions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm glad you'd mentioned, you know, this uh, sort of um, potential for playing a, a transformative role in, in China's reluctance, um, at least uh, traditionally to, to do so. Um, you know, there's been talk about, um, integrating Afghanistan in, into the Belt and Road and into the Belt and Road-linked China-Pakistan economic corridor. Uh, you know, in my view, these are, are kind of just notional plans. Uh, you know, China is not dependent on a singular access route to, to Europe or to the Middle East or to the Indian Ocean region. Um, and, you know, integrating Afghanistan into the BRI or to CPAC, um, you know, may be desirable, but it's not essential. And, you know, even when you look at integrating Afghanistan into CPEC, ultimately what that really means is just kind of bolstering Afghanistan's access to, to Pakistani ports. 
um, which, you know, the World Bank and other multilaterals are already doing. Um, so I'm wondering, one, you know, do you agree with my assessment? And then two, um, do you think Afghanistan has a, a meaningful role to play in the Belt and Road? You know, do policymakers in Beijing really envision uh, a role for Afghanistan in it? Or is this just, you know, the type of rhetoric and Belt and Road rhetoric we see elsewhere applied to Afghanistan, where it's, you know, a brand that needs to be promoted, but ultimately, you know, there's really few actual ambitions there. I recall in the sort of early days of the Belt and Road, when, you know, there were these sort of early maps rattling around, you know, none of which were sort of officially drawn up, but was sort of drawn up by people who are sort of interpreting where these visions were going sort of out from. Um, and the one thing that was quite striking about them was that they kind of shot out from China, overland through Central Asia, over to Europe, and they went through Pakistan as a corridor. And if you think about that, and you look at that on a map, basically you create a V, and in the middle of that V, you know, disconnected from the Belt and Road was Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that was always, uh, you know, a reality. I think, but the, the broader point in some ways, about the BRI and where Afghanistan fits within it was that, you know, the BRI in a way is not a project in that way. It's a vision. This is the, you know, Xi Jinping's big foreign policy vision. His idea is China will be, you know, this power that is connected to the world through these corridors of prosperity and trade and uh, wonderful things like this. Um, And those go in all sorts of directions, both literally on the ground in terms of roads and construction, but also conceptually as a kind of vision of China as an actor in the world stage. And so within, the, within both of those, there is a role in some ways for Afghanistan, um, but it's probably clearer on one than the other. And I think in terms of the physical infrastructure, yeah, I mean, you know, China's directly connected to uh, Afghanistan, but it's through a very remote place called the Wuhan Corridor, which, you know, you could build some very complicated infrastructure there, but the question would be why? <laughs> because you'd be connecting two parts of the world that really, you know, don't have many people in them. And so you know, you'd be spending a lot of money on something of, of slightly limited utility. Um, you know, in terms of the kind of big uh, infrastructure projects that have appeared on the ground or the Chinese companies that have gone there, um, I think, as you correctly point out, a lot of it has been really through IFI. So international financial institutions will put up a contract for tender and the Chinese contractor will win because they offer a competitive uh, project. Or they, off- they offer a good opportunity and they good value for money and so on and so forth. So that is sort of going to continue. And, you know, I think that, you know, the, on, on, the big infra, on the bigger mining side, of course, Chinese companies have been there for some time, but they haven't really lived up to the sort of potential that they could. And, you know, I think were the situation in Afghanistan more stable, I think you'd see more Chinese companies probably trying to get in to win some of these bigger, you know, economic opportunities where some of these mining contracts come up for tender. Um, so I think that that interest would be there. And then I think ultimately that would get called uh, the Belt and Road because it would be Chinese companies going out, doing investments in other countries. And, you know, that's kind of what China terms as BRI in some ways. Um, But I think in terms of specific bits and pieces that connect the two up, I think in some ways, probably the most significant one uh, on the ground would probably be the connections with Pakistan um, in terms of linking up, you know, Chinese infrastructure construction in Pakistan with Afghanistan, because there is a huge economic interconnectivity between those two countries. Um, And I think, you know, China would see that there is a benefit and need in investing in that. Um, And there is a kind of desire there on the ground for that to happen. And, you know, I think China would be happy to sort of support that. So I think that's where you might actually see it play it out more literally. I think if you look to the north, um, and you look to the Central Asian connectivity, again, there are some ideas that sort of rattle around, but, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that they are as critical. I think they're probably the most significant one, which is really driven by the Uzbeks, is the sort of Uzbek connectivity and uh, investment that flows back and forth there. Um, with Tajikistan and with Turkmenistan, you know, there is some, but it's, it's a bit more limited, frankly, and there's less uh, kind of interest and less uh, appetite and need for it. So if we're talking about sort of BRI connectivity, I think conceptually it will continue to be something we'll always see the Chinese talking about and we'll always see them doing you know, saying, well, of course, Afghanistan is a welcome member of the Belt and Road. We will continue to work towards it. But I think in hard practice, what we'll see is until we see greater stability on the ground, I don't think we'll see a sort of rush of major Chinese investment. I think we'll continue to see entrepreneurial businessmen going back and forth. And you'll continue to see Chinese, you know, construction contractors going for contracts when they come up for tender. But I think at this sort of strategic level, the biggest stuff will probably come in trying to link up 
Pakistan and Afghanistan more. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you touched upon this a bit earlier. Um, you know, some present Afghanistan as a kind of a new battleground for some sort of great game between uh, the U.S., China, India, and, and I guess even Russia. And, you know, this is a hackneyed phrase and, and all that, but it just, you know, it makes for good, I think, uh, SEO, search engine optimization. So you probably get a lot of good clicks from that, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one aspect of this discourse is is what you had, you know, just mentioned, Afghanistan's mineral wealth or estimated mineral wealth. Um, some uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises have won concession contracts um, and, you know, those projects um, have not really materialized. Um, and I think, you know, the prerequisites for exploiting these, these minerals and these uh, rare earths, um, you know, some estimate, you know, they've, they've been estimated, the value fluctuates with, you know, commodity prices and all that, but, you know, the value has been estimated uh, by some to be over $1 trillion. But in the end, you need the, the political stability, the security and, Perhaps most importantly, the infrastructure to to take all these ent- these um, minerals and, and rare earths and um, take them to a location where you can process them and where you can use them and, and send them to actual markets. Um, and none of that really exists in Afghanistan. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, um, and you kind of discussed this a bit earlier, but if you could expand on this, what is your assessment of how? Beijing views the economic prospects in Afghanistan, um, of Afghanistan, you know, do they see it as, um, you know, especially this minerals play, uh, do they see it as a real economic opportunity? Um, You know, is there a driving, where's, and where's the drive for this coming? Is it coming more from, you know, state-owned enterprises that are looking for, you know, Chinese Development Bank financing for just, you know, fi- you know, exploiting the next big project somewhere. Um, and, you know, if there are, you know, credible entities within China that do see, um, you know, these, this potential, these mining opportunities as, as legitimate and, and, and having real potential, what kind of risks are they really take, uh, willing to take to, to exploit them? Um, and, you know, would we see, for example, you know, the um, you know sending private military contractors and things like that to to Afghanistan to exploit these opportunities, or you know, is all this really just a non-starter? So, I mean, I think that you know, there's a lot of components there, and I think if we think first about you know what do they think of the opportunity, I think that you know certainly. Um, they will not be, you know, unaware of the fact that Afghanistan has got some, you know, theoretically substantial uh, natural resources that seem to be validated by very credible sort of geologists. And those are minerals and assets that, you know, Chinese uh, industry and the sort of giant Chinese economic machine would want. Um, And that is good. And I think that in some ways is why you have seen some Chinese companies come and make quite substantial plays in the region. I think the key point I would say is that if we think about the two big projects that, you know, we've seen on the ground where you've had Chinese companies, you know, come and make big plays to win large, uh, you know, extraction, extractive contracts and projects on the ground, which is the Messina copper mine uh, just below Kabul and the Amudarya oil concession up in the north. Um, in both of those cases, the projects were company led um, in that the company uh, individuals within the companies, which were state-owned enterprises, saw an opportunity on the ground. And the one in the north, in Amudarya, my understanding was that it was essentially the Chinese engineers in Turkmenistan who were there sort of, you know, mining Turkmen gas, who made the point that, you know, this gas field probably stretches across the border. Um, And so therefore, if you see a concession come up on the other side, there's a really rich opportunity there that we should take. And initially, I think CNPC did what is quite a small project, mostly because they wanted to have a foothold on the ground. because while the oil concession itself was not very large, it was, you know, an opportunity that was good and the company wanted to try out doing something there. But they recognized once they had a foot on the ground, when eventually the gas contracts came up later, uh, they would be in a prime position to kind of win them. So, you know, I think that was a kind of play there and it was very kind of company-led was my understanding. Similarly with the Messinac project, you know, that seems to have been driven uh, very substantially by, you know, the company, MCC, uh, you know, which is one of these big Chinese state-owned enterprises um, that, you know, has 
very interested in copper mines all over the world and has done a number of these projects everywhere and also does large infrastructure projects. Um, and again, the company there knew that this opportunity was on the table um, and made a play for it and offered what was at the time, uh, you know, a very alluring uh, contract to the Afghan uh, government and the Afghan government uh, went for it. Now, you know, there's all sorts of rumors and speculation and everything else around um around uh, corruption around the deal, but let's sort of put those to one side. Um, but instead, focus on the fact that when they won the contract, uh, and I'm talking specifically about the copper one, you know, the Chinese company offered an awful lot of other things as well. Um, they offered the fact that they were going to build some rail infrastructure. They were going to, the point you made about, you know, having to refine some of these uh, minerals before you can sort of ship them to market. Well, there was a plan to build a kind of a, a copper smelter, I think, nearby so that they could pull the copper out of the ground and then they could kind of, you know, refine it and then get it onto a truck or a train and then get it back to China. They were going to build a large power station because all of this would need a lot of power. And the idea from that power station would be that it would also provide a lot of benefits for the sort of local communities in terms of giving them regular access to electricity. Uh, you know, and there was a whole series of goodies that were sort of built into the project as well. So it really was going to be a kind of transformative project. And this was the offer that Chinese had made. And this is why I think the Afghan government gave them the contract um, in contrast to the many other uh, contra, you know, people who sort of submitted bids. Um, you know, but this is a very company-led opportunity. So you know, I think the key for me is that that, is, you know, that model will probably persist going forwards. You know, while mm. we all talk about the Chinese system as being one that is monolithic, you know, Xi Jinping says, do this, and you know, some little you know, engineer in you know, CNPC goes, oh, yes, sir, and goes, jumps off and does it. You know, that's not really how the system works. You know, it is a large system with lots of large moving pieces. And within these pieces, you have these state-owned enterprises that are interested, you know, whose job is essentially to go and acquire mineral wealth to ultimately bring back. You know, these are big oil companies that are ultimately state-controlled or big minerals companies that are ultimately state-controlled. You know, and so they will always go and look for these opportunities. And I think then tying into your question of risk threshold, their risk threshold and appetite is just, I think, much higher, uh, frankly, than uh, Western companies. Mm. Um, and their risk threshold for geopolitical risk as well is a bit different. Now, that one is probably, you know, there's a question in my mind about whether that uh, risk appetite is something that is conscious or maybe unconscious. Um, because I've seen a few projects around the world where you see Chinese companies getting themselves into some, you know, pretty awkward pickles, mostly because they didn't really, you know, think through or didn't really engage properly with the situation on the ground before they got into it. And, you know, it's possible that we see that playing out um, in, a, in an Afghan context as well. And to some degree, some have argued that that was some of the problems that emanated with the uh, CNPC project in the north, where CNPC went in with a partner that was ultimately close to, you know, uh, one faction in, in Kabul and wasn't necessarily correct to, close to the correct faction on the ground. And this created some problems from the company when they started to actually do stuff um, out on the ground in, uh, in the north of Afghanistan. So, you know, that kind of risk calculus maybe isn't as finely tuned <laughs> uh, in some of these Chinese state-owned enterprises as it is maybe for others. And that might help explain their sort of differing risk threshold. Um, but I think then to bring to your final point about, uh, you know, private military companies, um, I think that's a, uh, an interesting one. And I think there, you know, we have seen uh, a narrative of increased Chinese, you know, private military companies going out into the world or appearing in other places. And, you know, this makes sense why, you know, hey, well, the government told this, wanted this to happen and put out a paper saying we need this to happen and companies, you need to get better at doing this and you need to start hiring security companies and you need to, you know, we want to see the emergence of Chinese ones so we're not, you know, dependent on potentially, you know, meddling foreign ones. Um, so this is clearly a government push to develop these. Um, but I think the question becomes then, you know, would, is the opportunity in Afghanistan good enough uh, and tasty enough that you would want to go in there even with private military companies to try to protect you to ultimately deliver a project on the ground. And I'm not totally convinced by that. I still think that in a sort of, you know, potentially war zone type situation you'd have in Afghanistan, I think the Chinese companies will still first try to make arrangements with the local, you know, insurgents or militants or fighting groups on the ground and try to use them as their first layer of assurance. I think they might get some security contracts to come with them to help sort of, you know, train their engineers, to help teach their people to, you know, what to do, what not to do, how to avoid things. But I think, you know, I, I think that there's, it would be a very, it, it's a very risky move in some ways. And I think China can see this in terms of starting to deploy your people abroad, because, you know, what if they start getting into gunfights and you start seeing people getting killed? Um, I think there's some parts of the Chinese system that are sort of 
happy and would, wouldn't mind if it sort of went in that direction. But I still think there's a relative trepidation about how far uh, they want that to actually go and what the potential consequences of that would be. Um, and so I think the first port of call will often be, you know, to try to develop the relationships on the ground that would give you that kind of security assurance. Um, the problem is those aren't always reliable. And so the question then is, do you build that second layer of assurance and how big is that second layer? And that's the one that I think is probably dependent a bit on where you are. And I still think in Afghanistan, the instability and violence on the ground is probably high enough that I don't know that a Chinese company will necessarily be able to get the level of assurance on both of those levels uh, that would be adequate enough for them to say, yep, let's go ahead, take the risk and make a dive and go in there. And frankly speaking, we haven't seen much narrative from the big Chinese companies or frankly the Chinese government about, um, about this. When the embassy in Kabul talks about, you know, Chinese economic opportunity, the one they're fixating on at the moment is pine nuts, um, you know, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Afghanistan's an agrarian economy and that's fantastic. And I'm sure there are, there are beneficiaries from that, but, you know, it's not <laughs> the game changing kind of investments that you could get from, you know, if someone was to mine, you know, lithium, I, I think it was just down in Hellman, you know, that could be a real game changer, um, right. but it's a very unstable place. And, you know, who's going to go there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the opportunity has to, the risk has to, you know, there's a, some sort of correlation between risk and opportunity that has to be some exactly. kind of, um, you know, uh, reasonable ratio. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm glad you had uh, kind of deconstructed the sort of, uh, you know, used Afghanistan um, as a kind of a case study for deconstructing the political economy of of China's going out policy. And now it's, you know, Belt and Road, you know, these state-owned enterprises um, have quite a bit of initiative. So China, you know, is a very centralized authoritarian system with, you know, some very clear direction from you know, the top ruler uh, or the, you know, the, the top leader, but at the same time, um, you know, it's a very disaggregated system as well with, um, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, companies here in the, in the United States where I am, you know, may see, you know, a, you know, government contract going out and may try to, you know, bid for one and then, you know, everybody will, you know, try to run after it, you know, um, or if there is, um, you know, potential legislation for, for infrastructure, uh, they will start lobbying and, and try to sort of, you know, milk that, um, you know, there are rent seekers in, in every political system. And so uh, they do as much, um, you know, manipulation of, of the, the political process in in democracies, as well as more closed systems. Now, um, right. Uh, in, you know, when you look at uh, the China-Pakistan relationship, it's often described as a um, as an alliance or as an entente. Uh, you know, regardless of the term that you use, it is they are uh, one another's respect. You know, closest one of their closest allies or partners, um, and so you know, it's quite a cl cl close relationship that goes back decades. And at the same time, you know, you have Pakistan that has had some connection to the Taliban, um, you know, since its emergence. Um, and now, you know, the state of that relationship today, you know, it's, it's evolved to some degree, you know, the Taliban are a bit more independent um, and seek independence at the very least from, from Pakistani control. Um, but, uh, you know, the bottom line is that Pakistan still has some influence over this group, some leverage. And so I'm wondering, when you look at how Beijing approaches of Afghanistan, more specifically the Taliban and then more broadly Afghanistan, to what extent is there coordination or even outsourcing of policies or tasks to Pakistan? Um, and is there a kind of, you know, how does this triangle work? Is there coordination and collaboration between Islamabad or is China, you know, has it ultimately developed a relationship with Taliban and, and, and other actors there that really, you know, it's, it's fully, into, it, it doesn't really need Islamabad for any of this stuff or Raul Bindi. Huh. Um, well, I think that it's, it goes back a long way. I mean, clearly, you know, I think when the Chinese were, you know, initially cultivating relationships in Afghanistan, when the Taliban were in power, I think Kabul was their, I'm sorry, uh, Islamabad or Opini was their port of entry. You know, I think it's very clear that it was the Pakistanis who kind of brought the Chinese in. And, you know, I think, you know, the Chinese, I think, were the first non, you know, Muslim government to acknowledge uh, Taliban leadership. 
um, in uh, Afghanistan. Um, and I think that was done by, you know, that was done by the Pakistanis who, you know, wanted to bring their big ally into this. You know, and I think there was always a Chinese interest, you know, they do share a border for all the issues, all the reasons we've been discussing, you know, Afghanistan's an important country to China. Um, and I think initially it was something that was very much, you know, uh, controlled and managed by uh, the Pakistanis. But I think as time has gone on, that has shifted. And I think that's shifted partially because I think China has started to develop the relationships directly themselves because they want to, because why shouldn't they, frankly? Why do they need to go through someone else uh, to have a relationship with someone who's controlling, you know, a neighboring country, um, which makes sense. Um, so I think that's been a sort of driver of a sort of more direct effort, a Chinese engagement. Um, but having said that, I think that there's always been uh, a recognition in Beijing, and it's always a slightly precarious aspect to it, which is that they recognize that, you know, there is, there are, of course, tensions between uh, Pakistan and China, as there are with every sort of international relationship. And I think uh, what can be confusing a bit about the China-Pakistan one is there's this utter refusal to talk about this at a kind of public level. Um, instead, all we get is very, very overblown positive rhetoric and pushback on anyone who says that this isn't, you know, everything isn't wonderful and, and crystal between the China-Pakistan relationship. But there is a kind of underlying tension there. Um, and this expresses itself in lots of different ways uh, in terms of their frustration from a Chinese side that, you know, Pakistan problems that they're having in Pakistan or things that they think the Pakistanis should be delivering that aren't. Um, and I think frustration on the Pakistani side where they think that, you know, the Chinese are being quite pushy and, you know, uh, telling them to do things in their own country and they don't necessarily like that. Um, but I think when we talk about within the Afghan context, the Pakistanis in the Af have got a precarious relationship with the Taliban as well. You know, you can go and look at a number of reports that have come out where you can see that, you know, while the Taliban recognize that, you know, Pakistan is an incredibly important country for them um, in terms of, you know, providing them the sort of basis from which they can operate into, uh, into um, Afghanistan, it is not an entirely happy marriage there either. Um, and so that relationship is quite complicated. And so if we see the Chinese suddenly developing strong relationships with the Taliban that is being done without uh, sort of any sight by the Pakistanis, this can cause a certain level of friction because the Pakistanis will feel like they're losing control of the situation and that worries them. And it worries them, you know, because they don't, you know, they're worried about what might happen with the Taliban, but they're also worried about how any of this might blow back within their country. So it's quite a sort of precarious dance ultimately between the three of them. Um, but I think the part that, and in some ways this recent visit to Tianjin has really crystallized this, is that the Chinese are no longer, you know, I think there was still always a desire in the past to basically say, well, you know, we'll deal mostly with the Taliban through the Pakistanis or with the Pakistanis. I think now they're saying, look, we're doing it directly. And that's kind of that. And that's openly something they're now admitting and saying, and that is a bit of a change. But I think the point I would make about that, or I would add to that is that, you know, I think the ISI, well, the ISI chief and the Minister of Foreign Affairs were in uh, China shortly before the, uh, the visit uh, by the Taliban to Tianjin. And, you know, I think that this would have been a major topic of conversation in part, I think, because, you know, Beijing would have wanted to make sure that, you know, the, uh, the Pakistanis were aware of what was going on. And it's even possible that, you know, they wanted to uh, try to, you know, use that as a way of maybe delivering some messages before the uh, Taliban arrived uh, for direct conversation. So, you know, I think there's still a level of coordination cooperation, but I think the, the, the sort of the, the, the pillar or the, the side of the triangle, if you will, that has definitely been strengthened and made more public is the Chinese direct engagement with uh, the um, Taliban. And that is something that I think they're now doing directly uh, in a much more confident way uh, than they were previously when it would have been mostly through Islamabad. Okay. And, and final question, you know, Tony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, had recently said something to the effect of that, you know, no regional or, or global power um, seeks, uh, you know, chaos in Afghanistan or another civil war. And he essentially said, you know, that's an area of convergence for, for the regional and, and, and great powers and all that. Um, and when you look at, um, you know, the U.S.-China angle uh, in terms of Afghanistan, uh, you know, both countries were part of this uh, quadrilateral coordination group, uh, which, you know, included China, Pakistan, Afghanistan and, and the U.S. And then, you know, that was uh, led to you know, one of the first meetings between the Afghan government and the Taliban in Mari in Pakistan. Uh, and then, you know, both the U.S. and China are part of this 
uh, Troika plus entity that includes Russia and, and Pakistan is kind of like that fourth wheel, I guess, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so, you know, so we have, you know, despite the deterioration in relations between the U.S. and China, there is this, um, you know, somewhat consistency in terms of coordinating um, on or collaborating to some degree. There are so many different multilateral frameworks for handling the problem of, of Afghanistan, but the U.S. and China continue to be part of, uh, you know, at least one of them. And so I'm wondering, as let's say the situation in Afghanistan deteriorates, how resilient is this, you know, this inclination for, you know, the great powers to collaborate or to some degree on on Afghanistan? How resilient is that? And, um, you know, do you think there's potential down the road for, you know, this multilateral cooperation to kind of break apart and then, um, you know, Afghanistan once again then becomes an area of contestation uh, between regional and great powers, you know, India, Iran, China, and I'm really talking more so about the U.S. and China angle. Mm. I mean, I think that, you know, it was always interesting to observe that notwithstanding the huge tensions between the U.S. and China uh, that you used to see, um, and actually tensions between the Indians and the Chinese as well, you know, Afghanistan was always a place where they would uh, cooperate and you know they ran for some time you know a training program with the u.s and china were training afghan diplomats um and doing some other things in agriculture and healthcare um they established a similar program with the indians notwithstanding the f- broad attentions that they had and when modi and xi met they talked about afghanistan in quite specific terms about the place where the two of them could cooperate um the chinese have done stuff with the germans with the brits um and with other kind of other international actors with whom they have sometimes quite testy relations. So Afghanistan was always, I think, an interesting place from a Chinese diplomacy perspective, because it seemed to be the place where they were willing to sort of, you know, go across lines that in other places, um, you know, were incredibly difficult. And because they had, you know, there's a willingness to say, well, no, Afghanistan's place, we must still cooperate. Um, and I think that's what the NC echoed in this sort of multi-regional diplomacy uh, in which China has played a role alongside countries that are, you know, pretty substantial adversaries. Um, and this has been a thing from Beijing's perspective for some time. You know, you can look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that uh, China has been repeatedly trying to get to do more in Afghanistan and hasn't moved forwards really because the other partners within it didn't want to do stuff through the SCO uh, in Afghanistan. So, you know, it's been a consistent thing from China and I think it will continue to be. I think the complicating factor is really with the United States at the moment. Um, um, and possibly this spills into, I think it spills into other relationships as well. And I think a big, a very important element of this, which I, I'm not always sure is totally uh, appreciated, was the decision in the closing days of the Trump administration to take the East Texas Islamic Movement off a list of prescribed terrorist organizations. You know, this is China's primary concern in Afghanistan. You know, its primary concern is that what it calls ETIM, um, you know, but whether it's ETIM specifically, you know, if the name even, if that group even exists, or if it's not Uyghur militants in general in Afghanistan, that is the kind of major concern that China has from Afghanistan to come back and kick it, hit it. And the United States says it doesn't even exist. Um, And I think if you've got that crucial pillar, which is really fundamental to the Chinese side, as something that the Americans say doesn't even exist, you know, it's going to be difficult to get past that hurdle. Um, and then get back to a situation where you are really actively and happily cooperating on the ground. Um, And that's between the US and China in particular, and then that spills into other relationships. If we look at India, Uh, you know, the Indians are, you know, I think they've invested, they've given infinitely more aid to Afghanistan than China. Um, And there was even talk of the two of them cooperating, but, you know, clearly the US-India relationship is much stronger and it has been made stronger specifically because of growing concerns that both are having about China that creates tensions between Pakistan and India, of course, as well. Um, and that spills out. And all of this can spill into kind of Afghanistan as well. So my inclination is to suspect that actually we will see these sorts of broader geopolitical tensions become stronger uh, and more acute, frankly, in Afghanistan. Um, but I think, you know, the point at which the country becomes a space where we really see open uh, kind of proxy warfare against each other going on, I I don't know how much I'd, I think anyone really wants to see that happen. So I think there's probably a minimum threshold that they will kind of stay at um, and will try to uh, avoid letting things escalate too. 
Mm-hmm. So that resilience uh, in terms of the Afghanistan portfolio, um, you know, vis-a-vis um, renewing great power rivalries, kind of eroding, but mm. um, you know that doesn't necessarily mean you know all hell will break loose, right? Um, so, hopefully. Hopefully yeah, <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Well, thank you. Uh, that was great. You know, and you know, I wanted to bring you on because you know you're one of the few people who can really speak on this issue authoritatively, but then also, you know, resist the urge to sensationalize things. Which, you know, unfortunately, you know, viewing uh, the media coverage, even from you know just generic news coverage, there's been an unfortunate tendency to kind of hype. Uh, this visit of the Taliban to to China, and yes. and I really appreciate appreciate the you know the knowledge and the and, and the care with which you've uh, you know attempted to characterize all this, and I think our our listeners will certainly uh, be enriched by all of that. So thank you again. Thank you very much. No, thanks a lot for the invitation. I enjoyed it. Um, Great, and I look forward to seeing it up. So that was a really interesting discussion with Raffaello. I think he did a great job explaining the multifaceted nature of China's strategy toward Afghanistan in reaching out to the Taliban. The Chinese, as he had said, are only doing what everyone else has been doing for some time and publicly. Beijing has built relations with a wide network of actors in Afghanistan, and it's also been bolstering the security of Afghanistan's neighbors, attempting to create a buffer. It would be more accurate to say that Beijing is motivated more by fear than by opportunity, though it could also be the case that those fears are being overstated by outside observers, or that Beijing is using the specter of regional instability to promote a narrative of American unreliability. At the same time, there may be concerns among some in Beijing that the U.S. is up to some kind of proxy warfare. So, contrary to some of the media reporting and commentary we've seen recently, Raffaello made clear that China actually doesn't have great ambitions in Afghanistan. There's this false perception being propagated that Beijing has this master plan for Afghanistan and the broader region and is ready to step in to fill a vacuum left by the U.S., pouncing on some imaginary opportunity. In reality, the dangers outweigh any potential upside from the U.S. exit and more ambitious plans for resource extraction and connectivity are all really contingent on greater security and stability in Afghanistan. And sadly, neither are coming anytime soon.